0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, it's
1: Amy. Before we get started, I've got a little disclaimer. You might be wondering why we've got a new episode out today and why we didn't have one last week. Well, the piece that you're about to hear is something we've been working on for a couple of weeks was supposed to go out last week. But just as we were getting ready to publish it, our reporters uncovered new details. The story kept moving. So we held off on publishing anything. And now it's ready. So thank you for bearing with us and hope you enjoy. All right, here it is. A couple of weeks ago, I called up the FT's Paris correspondent, David Kiohan. He was just getting back to the FT Bureau. David, can you tell us what you've been up to today?
2: I'm just back from the Renault annual general meeting, which is uh, the big shareholder meeting and the first one since um, Carlos Ghosn was arrested last uh, November, as everybody knows, um, ex-boss of Renault, ex-boss of the uh, Renault-Nissan alliance. It was also the first uh, shareholder meeting where um, Jean-Dominique Senard, the new um, Renault chairman, this kind of like, you know, elegant, uh, tall, very diplomatic establishment Frenchman who was parachuted in by the government to take over after Ghosn's arrest when he was took over in January. Well, he had to address shareholders for the first time.
3: Bien, mesdames et messieurs, chers actionnaires.
2: And he was doing it again. Again, it gets more complicated. He was doing it um, a, a little over, it was about two weeks now, a week and a half, when the um, first the merger with FCA was proposed with Fiat Chrysler, and then it collapsed. So, eventful time for Monsieur Senard.
1: This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, we're looking at the mooted merger between Italy's Fiat Chrysler and France's Renault, how the deal came together, how it fell apart, what Renault's alliance partner Nissan made of it, and what it all means for the future of global car manufacturing. So, what can you tell us about Carlos Ghosn?
2: I can do my best. Um, um, so, Carlos Ghosn is this like larger-than-life chief executive. He was um, always known as being a little brash, a little outspoken, but he was also one of the most respected um, executives in the world, particularly in the auto industry. He held together Renault-Nissan, The Renault Nissan Alliance. He was kind of its architect, so to speak. To do that, you have to be Culturally, adroit. you have to be able to, to navigate kind of the French and Japanese establishment. You have to push off the French government. You have to push back the Japanese government, who they are not shareholders. But obviously, when it's a car company, you always have to take into account national interests. It's just the nature of it. So you should always assume that they fly the country's flag. It's the way it is.
1: What was the point of this alliance? Why was it set up?
2: Well, it was to, well, it was for scale, essentially. Nissan was in trouble. Renault took a stake. And they have been trying to bring their two companies closer together in order to, well, to eke out synergies. But that's dry, but it's to to build cars on the same platforms to get cost savings in terms of purchasing. So it was kind of an example in the car industry where mergers are notoriously difficult of a kind of non-merger that was beneficial to both sides. But the problem was it was it was almost a stasis, and no one knew what would happen once Carlos Ghosn left. That was that was the crux of the matter. So it was the idea was that he was to make it irreversible before he left, and from there we get into a whole other narrative.
3: Breaking news: um, in the past few minutes, Nissan has revealed that its chairman has been arrested after allegations of serious misconduct. The carmaker's chairman is thought to have failed to declare compensation truthfully. the CEO
4: of Renault, the chairman of Nissan, the chairman of Mitsubishi, and then the leader of the whole alliance. Who speaks for for the alliance now, now that Carlos Ghosn's been arrested?
1: Leo, do you remember where you were or what you were doing when you first heard that Carlos Ghosn had been arrested?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was an extraordinary thing.
1: Leo Lewis is Tokyo correspondent for the FT.
4: You know, I don't know, I don't know how, how how far this sort of filtered into the outside world's understanding of the situation, but a single Japanese media organisation knew that the arrest was coming and had positioned people, you know, on the, the apron of, of the runway for this aeroplane. And so one gets this information through, well, hang on, the Asahi is saying that Ghosn's been arrested. And first of all, there's a slight disbelief. And you think, hang oh, on, does it going they've got the right guy you I know, think and uh, and within moments you know we had the we had the TV on in the office and we were watching it all unfold because it was very much sort of the sort of early evening really here you know everyone's in the office that's the sort of time of the day where London's you're waking up and we're having our first calls into to, to London and so on and so we we're all there and waiting and, and then it just sort of it just sort of spiraled into this extraordinary night where uh, Saikawa called a press conference.
1: Hiroto Saikawa, he's Nissan's chief executive
4: officer. But Nissan's headquarters is not in Tokyo. Nissan's headquarters is in Yokohama, which is not far away, but it's a train journey. uh, And you have to go out of town, uh, well, out of central Tokyo and on a train and and then get to this, to Nissan's headquarters, which we did. And so the, the entire press corps of, of you know is on their way suddenly out to yokohama for this extraordinary press conference which you know in all the years covering japan i, I don't think i've ever seen anything quite like it it's really difficult to to understate just what a big deal carlos Ghosn was in in japan and and so you know, his arrest was a matter of of absolute fascination the allegations that nobody quite initially understood and what had he been doing and so understating his pay and what does that mean and
1: we should note that Mr. Ghosn denies these allegations.
4: You know there's this whole kind of whole kind of confusion that, that you know, in some ways has still not been resolved. You know? So yes, I remember every beat of it. Uh, and in the wake of that arrest, we have learned a great deal more about the tensions that uh, existed between Renault. Uh, and Nissan, many of which he was able to sort of paper over and some of which he was not. So in 2015, uh, there'd been a kind of renegotiation of the alliance and that had got pretty fractious. And then obviously in the, in the, in the months since his arrest, uh, we've really seen uh, the relationship between Nissan and uh, and Renault fraying quite severely. And then, you, you know, you had sort of Fiat Chrysler and a few other players out on the periphery as possibles, I suppose you'd say, as, as people that might at some point and to talk to one or another of the of the players in the alliance. And uh, lo and behold, what they did was uh, behind the scenes, begin talks with Renault.
1: Fiat Chrysler. The carmaker is partly owned by Italy's billionaire Agnelli dynasty. The family also owns Ferrari, the soccer club Juventus. They own The Economist and they even own a Bermuda reinsurer. But it's Fiat Chrysler, or FCA as it's often called, that is its biggest investment. And the fourth generation heir to this fortune, well, that's FCA's chairman, John Elkin. Rachel, why was John Elkin interested in Renault in the first place?
3: In the first place, it's important to keep in mind that John Elkin is not just chairman of FCA. He's the largest shareholder of FCA. Rachel Sanderson is the FT's Milan correspondent. This is an important distinction that John Elkin has skin in the game. John's aim, as he said multiple times, is to preserve the family investment that he inherited, or better still, to improve that investment, i.e. to make the family wealthier. And so we come to the interest in Renault. John and his former chief executive, Sergio Marchion, who was an Italian-Canadian, long argued that the auto industry suffers from overcapacity and technological disruption, or the risk from technological disruption. So John and Sergio Marchion had already done one merger, rescuing a nearly bankrupt Fiat by merging it into U.S. Chrysler. But since then, they've also argued they needed to do another big merger to create a group that in total was producing 6 million to 7 million cars a year. And that was in order to make their global automaker viable, given the the difficulties, the stormy environment they're in. And ultimately, you have to remember to preserve the Agnelli family fortune. And this is what brings us to Renault. So John has admitted he's been talking to automakers around the world for years about a possible deal. And suddenly he sees an opportunity opening up with Renault, in part because of the tensions happening elsewhere in Renault's orbit with Nissan.
1: We are following a major developing story in the auto world this morning.
3: Via yeah. Chrysler, FCA has submitted a proposal for a transformative merger with it Renault. Together, it would be a 50 50 merger, the management structure to be determined. Although... So, David, was this
1: meant to be a kind of merger of equals?
2: They they did not want to use that phrase. But, you know, it was 50 50 uh, with uh, FCA, which uh, paying a special dividend to kind of uh, equalize the valuation of the two companies. One of the criticisms of this merger proposal is that it, well, some bankers have said this to me, so it's that it was presented without being complete. There was no leadership decided, there was no leadership announced and the valuation was still open for discussion. Once you do that and you kind of start the discussion after after kind of making the, the proposal public, that gives all of the vested interests time to to shout, to, to say, I don't want this. This is not how it should be. And I, I know, um, you know, that the French state wasn't happy with the valuation, that they thought it wasn't reflective of Renault's value.
1: key piece of this story is the role of the French government. David told me that it was the French state that had actually directed Carlos Ghosn to go and make the partnership with Nissan irreversible.
2: So the French state said, "Okay, we're good with this deal. We'd like it to go ahead, but we have conditions. Those conditions were jobs, always jobs. So, you know, the idea that Renault would lose jobs, that's just not tenable, um, particularly with the current political environment in France. So they said no no jobs lost, no factories to close. Fine. They said... um, they said we do not want this to weaken the alliance in any way. Okay, the Renault-Nissan alliance. And there was there was another one that was uh, it was to do with the the new group would have to support a, a European batteries, but we can we can put that aside. That's not super relevant. The fourth one, which was became the biggest, was that they wanted Nissan to explicitly support the deal. They wanted to be sure that Nissan supported the deal.
1: But the issue was is that Nissan likely only found out about these merger talks when the news broke publicly.
4: As far as we understand it, for, for the overwhelming majority of people at uh... At, at, at Nissan, including the very senior executives, it seems to have been absolutely the first that they'd heard of it as, as well. A formal notice of the of the merger talks was delivered a day afterwards or a day and a half afterwards, and um, really does seem to have been a, a, a serious source of irritation for, for Nissan that they were not brought in sooner. So the talks had clearly been going on for several months uh, between Fiat and, and and Renault, and so uh, you know after all that. Talk about uh, about you know management by consensus and you know running the alliance by consensus. You know here you had a situation where where Renault appeared to have made a decision uh, that it was sort of telling telling its alliance partner about as a fait accompli. And you know actually I think in the end uh, Nissan actually handled it probably fairly well. Uh, I mean they didn't uh, they didn't kick up a great fuss, uh, but they said that uh, you know they needed time to um, to understand more about the, um, you know, the merger proposal that was uh, that was that was on the table, and uh, things were at that point moving very very quickly. And uh, I think, in, you know, in, as a general observation of Japanese companies, they they they, they felt they needed time, uh, and um, uh, they didn't get it. Uh, so you know, that was yet another source of um, of friction. The
2: narrative is that basically the French thought that Nissan supported the deal. And then, when it came to the board meeting, the final board meeting where all of this came undone, the two Nissan board members said they would abstain. Now, if you're not talking to the state, you're talking to other people, uh, you know, and journalists, as Glingo, familiar with the matter, they will say that the Nissan board members abstained positively. They abstained because so, Nissan wanted more time to analyze this. And so there's the, there was this moment where Nissan abstained. The French state's board representative went and talked to the finance minister there was a delay of about an hour and the board meeting had already dragged on for five hours at this stage i can tell you because i was writing about it and it was late um and uh, and he came back and he basically said the state's uh, board representative martin Vial said look this isn't gonna we need a delay we need a delay of five days for the finance minister Le Maire. he's going to be in japan anyway because of the g20 finance ministers meeting he wants to go and talk to, to, to his japanese counterparts he wants to see them face to face and he wants to be assured of their support at that stage misha Senar, he uh, he um, called john elkan at fca and he said look there's going to be a delay i'm um, sorry it's going to be a delay and he, sorry before doing that he had actually warned everyone that if there is a delay we could kill this deal so he called elkan a little while later he gets a text from elkan saying it's off
3: Rachel, what, what was going through John Elkin's mind during all of this? This was his family investment on the line, one that he'd been charged with preserving. A person close to him said to me he did not want to see the stock price of his company just hanging for five days in the market while the French state prevaricated. John felt he'd done a lot of due diligence building up to the offer FCA made to Renault as well. He went to see Emmanuel Macron, France's president, before FCA put its bid to Renault, I've been told. He feels that, and the people around John feel, that they had the right chemistry to get this done. The timing seems to fit, the personalities seem to fit, they think they have deal magic here, one advisor tells me, and then boom, the French state asks for five days more um, and John decides he cannot have French politics... The French state, which has a 15 percent stake in Renault, will have only a 7 percent stake in the merged company, calling the shots even before any deal is done. He considers and people close to him consider the market's going to judge this badly, this prevarication by the French state, and it's going to put his family investment at unnecessary risk. And so John Elkin walks away from the deal. Sophia Chrysler withdraws its proposal for Renault.
1: And now everyone from reporters to people even inside these companies were trying to figure out what would happen next
4: um, there was a great deal of confusion there was certainly an effort to um, back in Paris there was certainly an effort to make it look as though it was Nissan's intransigence that had had discovered this whole thing but then you really started getting the sense that um, that the the, the the you know sort of locus of, of blame uh, lay with the French state um, and that you know Nissan Really didn't have much of a choice. Um, it, it had to abstain. The, the reason it had to do that is is because it couldn't have voted for uh, without having more information. It didn't want to vote against because it actually could see some merits I- I- in this merger proposal. And the abstention it judged maybe wrongly, you know, that you know, out of twenty votes, two abstentions were not going to kill the whole thing dead. Uh, but then you know as it turns out that they were sort of made to say, make it feel like that was the case so there was some consternation in in japan that you know certainly that you know maybe there'd been a miscommunication or maybe you know there was a i think there was a genuine chance uh, knowing both sides as, as as you know we do um there was a genuine chance that there had been serious miscommunication
1: that maybe this wasn't quite the calculated move some had interpreted it to be.
4: But then you had this extraordinary tit-for-tat day later, day day or two later, where Senard, who has personally supported Nissan's attempts to get its corporate governance back on track after years of of being pretty shoddy and pretty heavily criticised by analysts. And one of the main things that Nissan had decided to do, you know, based on recommendations from a committee that included people from Renault, or ex people from Renault, um, was to install this three-committee system uh, for the board, and, and that's sort of regarded as the kind of, the, you know, the best way to ensure a measure of, um, uh, you know, of independence uh, on things like remuneration uh, and the selection of, of future executives, and nominations for the, next, for the next board. Two things that were obviously lacking at, at Nissan under undergone. You know, that plan seemed very straightforward, uh, actually. I mean, difficult to implement, but, but straightforward, sort of ethically and, and, and sort of intellectually straightforward.
1: And these new corporate governance proposals, well, Nissan is set to put them up for a vote at its annual shareholder meeting today, June 25th. I talked to Leo and David again late last week about what's been going on between Renault and Nissan since news of Fiat Chrysler's proposal first broke. That's why they're going to sound a little different than they have so far
4: when they wanted to uh Renault really hit Nissan uh, where it hurt and uh, we uh, discovered um from from our sources that uh just a couple of weeks ahead of that uh, Renault had uh, sent a letter well John dominique Senard had sent a letter to his uh, uh, to to the Nissan CEO uh, Hiroto Saikawa saying look we are not going to uh, we're not going to vote for uh, these changes we're just going to abstain and of course uh, Renault has a 43% stake uh, in Nissan. And effectively, that abstention means that Nissan can't get uh, those changes through, changes that are extremely important to, to Nissan's kind of self-image uh, and to its uh, you know, its attempt to convince shareholders that it's moving on uh, from the Go era. So that was a really serious blow. And it was very clear from the moment that we broke that story that what was happening was that Renault was providing... A, the start to a negotiation uh, that it wanted something, uh, and uh, then within a few days uh, it emerged what it was that what it was they wanted was uh, for Thierry Bollore to have a seat on one of these uh, committees.
1: Thierry Bollore, the chief executive of Renault.
4: The understanding is that
2: uh, Nissan's going to give this to Renault. They're going to um, put Thierry Thierry Bollore, um, Renault's CEO, on the audit committee. That looks like it's going to paved the way to a deal they'll get the support at the AGM and there is an element of you know peace accord of playing nice now the the, the thing to keep in mind though is that Stenar I think wants to restart the relationship and thinks these boards might be able to do that somewhere in the back of his mind I think is a hope of bringing back this FCA deal in the medium term in the next year Again, this is just from sources from talking to people. The idea is that if it goes longer than that, market conditions will have changed enough that kind of the deal that had been put in place will become stale and and it just won't be possible without an enormous amount of refounding. Again, from conversations with people in the French state, their opinion is we need to settle. Uh, We need to find an agreement witness. And that's the most important thing. And they think that that should be the priority And their timeline is not set. So there is uh, an urgency of sorts on the Renault side uh, with FCA in mind and on the French state side, a willingness to wait as long as it takes, really, I think, to get um, that kind of stable, positive relationship with Nissan in place.
1: Rachel, how about Fiat? What is their thinking? What is John Elkin's thinking on where things stand?
3: The Agnelli dynasty held their annual family meeting last week in Turin. In total, there were about 100 members of the Agnelli family gathered at the historic base of Fiat in northern Italy to hear John Elkin talk about their investment. Inevitably, he ran through what had happened with the bid to merge with Renault. He explained the logic... He explained what went wrong, an unnecessary delay in his view by the French state. He pointed out that other investments have made great gains. But John's main message to the family, I've been told, was, and now it's time to get back to business as usual. Which, of course, it's not. It's very difficult to suddenly go back to business as usual. After a a bid proposal like that to Renault, someone close to John said to me, "This this was a move that put the cat among the pigeons meaning that it has shaken up global autos. It's put a firecracker into a sector that has already known, even though it's been running profits, but it already knows it needs to deal with these big issues we've spoken about. So the expectation widely held now is that this was just the first part of what will probably be a multi-part drama. And sooner or later, a deal will happen in the global auto industry. But the parts are still moving. The characters are still moving. We don't know where it will land but we do know that John Elkin has shown he clearly wants to be part of it. So more deal-making
1: is inevitable. I guess it's just a matter of who it will ultimately be with. Thank you, Rachel, David, and Leo. You can read more from these three as well as the rest of our deals reporting team at FT.com. If you like this episode or one of our earlier episodes, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It is a really helpful way for people to find the show. You can also email us at behindthemoney@ft.com, And I'm on Twitter at Amy P. Keene. That's A-I-M-E-E-P-K-E-A-N-E. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks.
0: luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style it's the kia summer sticker sales event so give your friends something to look at like a BB with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers or a sunset that needs no filter